0: Good morning. It is a pleasure to be able to join with you this morning and have the opportunity to uh, sit under God's word with you. Um, isn't it an encouragement to know that our Lord Jesus has outposts of His kingdom in various areas across the Milwaukee area, that we're not alone, that the Spirit is working in various communities around Milwaukee? So thank you for having me here today. It's been a joy to hear about what God is doing in your community, as I've gotten to know Danny, um, and it's an encouragement to us to know that there are other churches as well. Um, As we just got done reading, um, we're going to be in Mark chapter 2 this morning, looking at Jesus' call of Levi, or uh, his other name, Matthew. Uh, Let's begin with prayer. God, we thank you for the opportunity this morning to gather as a church here in Brookfield representing what you are doing in this area of the globe, representing that you have called people not just like Levi, but you have called us as well. We ask that as your prophet Isaiah said, your word goes forth without fail, that it would also go forth without fail this morning. As we think about the gospel of Mark and we think about how your son talks about how the word goes forth like seed being thrown on different soil, that you would uh, make us the sort of soil that receives your word and bears fruit. That as Peter confesses Jesus as the Christ and, and, and Jesus tells him flesh and blood has not revealed this, that it would be true of us that your spirit would cause our eyes to be able to see the glory of Christ in your word. We know that our, our, any of our efforts here are fruitless unless you enable the work of our hands, unless you build the temple house that is the church. And so we pray that you would be building that this morning as we seek to hear from your word. Amen. Sinners faced with their sin often have one of two reactions. The first is despair. Despair the thought that I'm too far gone, that things are hopeless. We feel overwhelmed by our sin and our brokenness. The other response, however, might be self-righteousness, that we try to actually ignore or explain away our sin. We effectively pretend that it's not there, or maybe it's not all that bad. Maybe you find yourself tending to one or maybe even both of those responses. Despair or self-righteousness. The thing is, neither ends up satisfying us. Either we are honest with ourselves about how broken we are, but are left without hope, or we are dishonest with ourselves about how broken we are in order to maintain a false hope. But as we'll see in today's passage, Christ offers us an escape. Jesus allows us to be both completely honest with ourselves about how broken we are and precisely in so doing, we find hope in him. Our passage today is broken up into sort of two sections. If you wanna know how the passage is organized or its structure, we have two scenes as maybe you'll see. Maybe the ESV in front of you has even two paragraphs representing these two scenes. Two scenes that showcase Jesus' mission to pursue sinners. In the first scene, verses 13 to 14, Jesus calls a sinner, Levi. And in the second scene, verses 15 to 17, Jesus has table fellowship with sinners. Or in the first scene, we get a particular example of Jesus pursuing sinners. And in the second, Jesus defends these actions against those who challenge him. And the primary claim, I know in your notes on, on the bulletin on the back side, you have a spot for your primary claim. This is it. The sermon in a sentence. Jesus has come not for those who think they are well, but for those who know they are sick with sin. Jesus has come not for those who think they are well, but for those who know they are sick with sin. And let's break down this passage as we look at two of the main character sets, two of the main characters in this passage. First, I want us to look at Levi, the tax collector. Our passage today tells the story of when Jesus called Levi, or Matthew, to be one of his disciples. Now Levi was a tax collector, and tax collectors in the Roman Empire system, uh, that system was full of corruption. A tax collector like Levi made his living by agreeing to collect money for Rome, but then he would actually extract above and beyond that amount in order to keep the surplus for himself, and so extortion, was rampant in this career. In doing this, Levi was a traitor to his own people. He saw an opportunity to make good money, but he did so at the expense of his fellow Jews. He made wealth by becoming a henchman for the oppressive Roman Empire. Needless to say, tax collectors were not well-liked by their fellow Jews. Not only were they corrupt, stealing from their own people effectively, but they also served as a tangible reminder, a constant reminder of Roman domination and occupation. In fact, tax collectors were so despised that Jewish oral law said that they could not serve as a judge or even a witness in court. They were automatically expelled from the synagogue, the the community center. They were deemed as a public disgrace to their families. Even if they were to just simply enter a house, that house was said to be made ritually unclean simply by their presence. Fellow Jews were not allowed to even receive money or alms from tax collectors since the money they had was considered to be stolen Tax collectors belong to a class of people known as sinners. You'll notice that's exactly how Jesus describes them in verse 16. Look at verse 16. It says that Jesus was eating with what? Sinners and tax collectors. In other words, tax collectors belong to a group of people known for living in sin, known as Torah, lawbreakers. People like thieves, adulterers, murderers, prostitutes, and tax collectors. Ordinary Jews would have nothing to do with tax collectors. Recall Matthew 18, Matthew's Gospel, chapter 18, where Jesus says that when you are to discipline someone and remove them from the church, you are to treat them as what? a Gentile, that is an outsider, and a tax collector. Jesus can say this because everyone would have known what it meant to be treated as a tax collector, that people kept separate from you. Therefore, when Jesus came proclaiming the arrival of God's kingdom, which is how Mark opens, right? Jesus arrives on the scene, behold, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe the gospel. When Jesus comes announcing the arrival of God's reign in himself, no one would have expected that it would be for someone like Levi. He's too far gone, they'd say. They likely would have thought that God's kingdom is for the righteous, right? God's righteous rule is for the righteous, not sinners like Levi. But one day, as Jesus was traveling through Capernaum, He came by Levi's tax booth, and to everyone's great surprise, Jesus called Levi to be one of his disciples. Later, Jesus even went to Levi's house and ate with him, along with other tax collectors and known sinners. As the kingdom of God arrived, who were to be expected to be among its citizens? Who were expected to receive an invitation to the messianic banquet of salvation? It certainly would not have been expected to be folks like Levi, but here they were, banqueting with that Messiah, fellowship with the Christ. And as Jesus explained, this was no accident. In fact, Jesus came for people just like Levi to invite them into God's salvation. As as Jesus says in verse 17, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but I came to call sinners. Those who receive salvation are not those who think they've earned it, but precisely those who recognize that they don't deserve it. Those who recognize their need. Sinners, as Jesus says. The second character set we get in this passage shows up in the second scene, and that is the scribes belonging to the Pharisee party. Now, scribes, or sometimes called lawyers, these were experts in Torah, experts in God's law, as well as being experts in the oral law, the oral tradition that uh, some of the Jews set up as sort of a boundary, a fence around God's law. And these were scribes, as as Mark's gospel says, that belonged to the party of the Pharisees. So as we have like political parties today, so there were religious parties, or we might think denominations kind of like that. Um, And so the Pharisees were one of those groups. The Pharisees were particularly concerned with moral and ritual purity. When you think of the Old Testament and you think of Israel in the Old Testament, your mind probably immediately thinks of idolatry and a pretty wayward people. As a result of their waywardness and idolatry, God sent them into exile. Well, following exile, what we sometimes refer to as Second Temple Judaism, a lot of different Jewish groups emerged many, in many ways in response to the devastation they experienced. And the Pharisees emerged as a group within that time period, Uh, effectively as a way of saying, we never want to go into exile again. Let us follow God's law to an absolute T and set up rules around God's law. Let us maintain as much purity as possible. So this was kind of your regular class people. These weren't elites. These were what you might consider your theologically conservative Bible believing folks who are very serious about following God's law. Now, additionally, table fellowship in the ancient world was quite significant. In the ancient world, eating meals together expressed intimate association with another. Moreover, the Jews had very strict dietary standards in order to avoid anything that could be deemed unclean. And so they would have been incredibly opposed to eating with a tax collector and entering into a tax collector's house in order to have table fellowship with him. This would have been scandalous. And so they were infuriated by Jesus' actions. Who does this rabbi think he is modeling such horrendous behavior when people are looking up to him? For those like these these scribes, these Pharisees, Jesus' pursuit of sinners was offensive. It was scandalous. You see, a works based, a performance based mindset says, I am accepted and worthy based on what I do, my performance, my moral purity, how well I keep certain moral standards, if I live as a good person. This mindset then sees grace as something scandalous and offensive. We like to feel like we've done what it takes to earn recognition and to earn God's blessing. And so we are scandalized and offended when folks who clearly don't deserve it receive such favor and acceptance. Grace is offensive to works. But of course, when we think this way, we are failing to realize that in fact none of us is in the position of one who is deserving That all of us are, in fact, deep debtors to God's grace. And so Jesus explains in verse 17. And when Jesus heard it, when he heard their complaints, he said, "...those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners." Now, I don't think this is saying that Jesus thinks some are actually righteous and therefore don't need healing, but effectively some think of themselves as righteous. They act as if they are righteous and not in need of saving. You see, Jesus has come not for those who think they are well, but precisely for those who know they aren't for those who, are, who know their sickness with sin and they need the healing of Jesus. Jesus has come then not to separate himself from sinners, but to come after them and save them. Mark presents Jesus throughout his gospel as God's authoritative king, the authoritative king of God's arriving kingdom. When a king arrives who do they invite into their entourage? Who do people with authority often spend time with? Typically the most important people, the most well-respected. They don't invite people who others view with skepticism and suspicion and negativity, the sort of -of bottom-of-the-barrel people in society. For example, when a president, a newly elected president, selects his cabinet members We expect them to choose those who are well-respected. They wouldn't choose someone who's committed treason against the state, for instance. They wouldn't choose the worst of the worst in society. They want the best of the best. But this is exactly what Jesus does by calling a tax collector and a sinner like Levi. He chooses the unexpected to be in his entourage, You see, Jesus is an unexpected king. He doesn't operate by the world's standards, the way that the world does things, the way that we would do things. Jesus is the king who comes for sinners like me and like you. Jesus has come not for those who think they are well, but those who know that they are sick with sin. And this unexpected king accomplishes his mission also in an unexpected way. Most kings show up to what? Be served. But Jesus tells us in Mark 10, as we get to the middle of the gospel, and he starts to explain in much more detail where his mission will lead him, he explains that his kingship includes reigning from a cross. That he has come not as a king who will be served, but as a king who comes to serve. And to serve To the extent of laying down his life, of of being a ransom for many, as Mark 10.45 says. A ransom, this, this language of being bought out, this redemption idea of being bought out of slavery. That in our sin we are enslaved to our sin. We have a debt before a holy and righteous God. And Jesus bears that sin for us on the cross. Enabling us to have forgiveness Before God, for all those who trust in Him. So, as we think about how we bring a passage like this to bear on ourselves, the so what question, let's first consider how a passage like this changes how we view ourselves, and then, second, we'll look about how this passage changes how we view others. First, how a passage like this changes how we view ourselves. None of us Is in fact righteous and well. We are all the sick, according to this passage. So the question for us is is do we know ourselves to be sick with sin? Or do we think of ourselves as if we are well? We like to pretend that we are well if we're honest with ourselves. In fact, it's quite common even within our society today for us to label things that are sick as being health and things that we should even pursue and embrace. This is the culture we live in. We don't like to admit our sin. We don't like to acknowledge our brokenness. But Jesus is of no aid to the person who thinks that they are well. The person who denies that they have anything wrong with them is never going to go to the doctor, right? The first step in receiving healing is recognizing that you need healing. But for those who know that they are sick with sin, Jesus welcomes us as the perfect physician. And so if you are here today and you are deeply aware that you are sick with sin, if you are despairing, know that your sin is not a barrier to coming to Christ. If anything, it makes you all the more eligible for Christ. Christianity is not for those who have it all together. It is for sinners like you and me. The message of Christianity is not one of self-improvement. Jesus isn't just some moral teacher who teaches us how to clean up our lives. No, Jesus describes himself with this picture of a physician. The gospel isn't a command to better ourselves, but a promise that he will heal us of our sin. And so put your trust in the physician. Sometimes folks complain that the church is full of sin. It's full of hypocrisy. To which we say, well, yes, of course, which is why you'll fit right in. (laughs) You see, the church is not a museum of saints, as some have said. It's a hospital for sinners. In the church, there are no perfect people allowed. The church is a family of saved sinners, and that should be our motto as churches no perfect people allowed. It's okay not to be okay, in other words. You don't have to come to church and come to the church community and pretend that you have it all together or put on a front of righteousness. The church should be a place where we can be open and completely honest about our sin and vulnerable with one another. But if you're like me, you don't like having your sin pointed out. It's, it's humbling, and we are prideful. We like to be right, and we like to be seen as right before others. But this is where the gospel enables us. It empowers us to be honest with ourselves and with others about our sin. Because the gospel has already shown us that we are sinners. And it already tells everyone else that we are sinners. We cannot confess to anything worse than the gospel has already said about us, in other words. That we are utter sinners in need of grace. That should be no surprise then when you express that to other people and when you come to grips with it yourself. The gospel also tells us, though, that we have complete forgiveness. And so if we are believers, there's also no sin that we can confess that the gospel hasn't already declared forgiven, paid for, dealt with. No questions anymore. No doubt about it. That we're no longer enslaved then to needing to establish our own righteousness in our own eyes, in the eyes of God, obviously, but also in the eyes of each other. That we are freed to be honest about our sin and seek healing in Jesus together as the church. But Christ also doesn't leave us in our sin. He not only welcomes the sinner, but you'll notice that our passage describes him as a physician. Physicians work to heal. And so Jesus not only welcomes the sinner, but he also heals us of our sickness. He transforms us. I think of the passage in John 8 where Jesus welcomes the woman caught in adultery and he says, go and sin no more. Or or Paul in Ephesians chapter 4 when he says, this is not the way you've learned Christ. What's the way we've learned Christ? We've learned about Christ in the gospel. It's to be new people, a new humanity. The grace of the gospel is not only a forgiving grace, but it is a transforming grace. Second, let's consider now how this changes how we view other people. As we consider our posture to the world around us, to our surrounding culture, our coworkers, our neighbors, do we look down our nose at others in judgment? Do we talk about them with disdain or even ridicule? Or does our speech reflect our own indebtedness to grace? We live acknowledging that we too are debtors to God's grace. Like Paul, our, our reflex, our, our gospel instinct, our impulse should be, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, by the grace of God, I am who I am. It's only by God's grace that we are who we are as believers. And this means that pride, disdain, self-righteousness, judgmentalism have absolutely no place in the Christian's life. We are not better than others. We only are who we are by the grace of God. And our debt to God's grace should make us humble and gentle and sympathetic with others. So our interactions with others and with the world around us should be dripping with that sense of grace. If Jesus pursued sinners, then so should we as well. As Jesus says in Matthew ten twenty four. a disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. If Jesus pursued sinners, then so should we. We follow in his footsteps. So a question for us is whether we are pursuing those who are sick with sin. Do we pursue, actively pursue, those who are sick with sin? Those that a passage like this would have in view. The bottom of the barrel sort of people in society. The people that God has his eye out for. Are those the people that we have our eye out for? Are there certain people that we, whether consciously or unconsciously, sort of find ourselves keeping our distance from? Maybe you're like me and you feel some sort of inner resistance or hesitation to this idea. Because embracing those who are sick can mean sacrificing our comfortable, convenient form of Christianity. It actually asks sacrifice of us. It asks us to do things that we may not be comfortable with. I think this is a question we can ask of our churches, too. That who are the sort of people we attract as churches? those who have their lives together, a sort of comfortable, convenient Christianity? Or do we attract the quote-unquote sinners, the sick in our society, those who are clearly broken? Are there any subtle, unspoken expectations about the sort of people that are welcome in our churches, of the sort of people that make up our churches, the, 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 the sort of people that our churches are for, We should strive to be churches where the most broken, the most unwanted, the most destitute look at our church and we have the reputation where they say, yes, that, of all places, that's the place for me. For those of you who are parents, we would want our kids to feel like they can turn to us in times of trouble. Unfortunately for many kids, though, their parents can sometimes be the last people they would turn to if they got themselves into trouble because they're afraid of how their parents might react. And likewise, I'm afraid that for many, the church in America may have gained a similar reputation. It's actually the last place that someone would turn to if they were caught in sin. We should make it our aim to gain a reputation in our communities, though, that we are the first place sinners turn to. A church for the broken. This passage also teaches us, I think, that no one is beyond the gospel's reach. The gospel is for people like Levi. Maybe we feel that there are some people who are simply too far gone, They're too sinful to come to Christ. Maybe you're tempted to feel this way about a child of yours who has walked away from the faith. Maybe a friend. Or maybe you're here today and this is what you think about yourself. That I'm too far gone. God would never accept me. But if Christ came precisely for those who are sick with sin, then our sin, far from making us ineligible, is what makes us perfect candidates. For the physician's healing. It is not those who are well who need a physician. No, it, Christ is in the business of healing sinners. Such are the very people that Christ came to save. Let's pray. God, we are in awe that this message is true, that when we open our Bibles, we can actually find this message. It's not what we expect. What we expect in your righteousness and holiness is to simply see your wrath, which of course we do see. But as Ephesians says, we were dead in our sins. We were by nature children of your wrath, but God. And we thank you, we thank you that you did not leave us in your wrath, but you sent your son in love. You loved the world, that you sent your only son. That whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. We thank you that that is true. We ask that as we sit under that truth this morning, that you would massage that truth into our hearts. That we would not just know that intellectually, but we would we would it would be an instinct that we have, an impulse. It would get down into our bones. That we would be dripping with grace. That we would deeply sense your grace upon us as sinners. That we have nothing to hide before you because of your grace that you would make Redemption Church and other churches a place of transparency and vulnerability and openness so that people can find healing in Jesus, but also that you would uh, cause us by your Spirit to be dripping with grace as we interact with non-believers in our different spheres of influence. We thank you again for the opportunity to gather again this morning and to celebrate different things like a baptism and new life in Christ. We pray for the rest of our service together. Amen.